Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mormonism is one of the few homegrown religions in the United States, yet members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have struggled for status and recognition. In his book, out from Oxford University Press, Religion of a Different Color, W. Paul Reeve explores the ways in which 19th century Protestant white America made outsiders of an inside religious group. Much of what has been written on Mormon otherness centers on economic, cultural, doctrinal, marital, and political differences that set Mormons apart from mainstream America. Reeve instead looks at how Protestants racialized Mormons, using physical differences in order to define Mormons as non-white to help justify their expulsion from Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. Mormons, of course, responded with aspirations toward whiteness, and it was a back-and-forth struggle between what outsiders imagined and what Mormons believed And so successful, ultimately, were Mormons at claiming whiteness for themselves. But by the time Mormon Mitt Romney sought the White House in 2012, he was labeled the whitest white man to run for office in recent memory. Debbie Paul Reeve is Associate Professor of History at University of Utah. He's author previously of Making Space on the Western Frontier, Mormons, Miners, and Southern Paiutes, and co-editor of Mormonism, a Historical Encyclopedia, and Between Pulpit and Pew, the Supernatural World of Mormon History and uh, Folklore. Paul Reeve uh, joins us for the hour. Uh, Professor Reeve, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Very interesting book, and uh, I, I can't help but think about echoes in the current political campaign um, we would talk a bit about that. Uh, I want to start uh, with the cover of the book. And uh, in fact, uh, you organized the book based on this uh, political cartoon. I'll just read the opening uh, sentences from the book. Uh, on 28 April 1904, less than two months after the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Joseph F. Smith, spent a withering six days as a witness before a U.S. Senate committee, Life magazine published a political cartoon that offered a profound pictorial vision of what Mormonism looked like at the dawn of the 20th century. This is cartoonist C.J. Rudd, and he labeled his drawing Mormon Elderberry out with his six-year-old kids who take after their mothers. Uh, tell me about this political cartoon. Well, uh, you know, I think the Mormon elderberry, the central character in that political cartoon, is a deliberate caricature of Joseph F. Smith, who was then president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, was in the national news because he had spent, like you said, uh, you know, six days on the witness stand as, uh, in the Reed Smoot hearings. So he's he's a central figure, and then on either side of him are an internationally and racially diverse group of children. Uh, and the notion is that each of the children take after their mothers, and so Mormon Elderberry would have therefore had, um, in this cartoonist uh, imagination, a black wife, a Native American wife, a Scottish wife, um, a Chinese wife, an Irish wife, um, and you know a Dutch wife, and presumably a couple of British street urchins, um, so, you know, British wives. Uh, so I think, you know, the, the message from Life magazine in, uh, in 1904 is, is simply that Mormonism, or Mormon polygamy more specifically, represents not just a threat to the traditional family, but a threat to the white race. Mormons facilitate race mixing and the darkening of the white race, making it unfit for democracy. And I think life is trying to trap Mormonism in a racially suspect past at the same time that Mormonism is uh, trying to transition into a white and pure future. 
Uh, I want to uh, just read a, just a little bit of a review by uh, this is by Quinn Rollins in Goodreads, and I think uh, many Utah Mormons would echo what he what he says. And, and it, by the way, he gives uh, your book uh, five stars, full you know full rating. Uh, he 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 liked it. Um, he says that he's Mormon, and he he, he would be surprised <laughs> to learn that he was of a different race. Uh, he he points out that his background is from Northern Europe. And, uh, and I think many, at least Utah Mormons, would, would share that. Surprised to learn this history. Yes, I think that's right. I think um, most Latter-day Saints are surprised. Uh, those who have read the book uh, or those who uh, you know find out about the way in which Mormons were racialized are really caught off guard. It's, it's a long-forgotten part of Mormon history. It's not certainly taught as uh, a factor in the way Mormons are treated in the 19th century. And so I think most Latter-day Saints are caught off guard, even those from Northern and Western Europe who uh, you know, looked white, who you would assume could easily assimilate, were actually denigrated uh, as uh, a part of what one medical doctor called a new race, but it was a deformed, degenerate race. And most Latter-day Saints are unfamiliar with that aspect of their history. The race is complicated. You know, we know that. We, you know, we, we, many of us have yearned for a post-racial society, election of President Obama, and then, then there's a backlash, and it just seems like it's a, a, as messy a debate as ever. Uh, so it takes back to the 19th century. The, uh, the, the Protestants, uh, mainstream Protestants, many of them were not only trying to make Mormons other in terms of religious, but they're trying to make them other in terms of race. What was going on there? Yes, well, you're you're absolutely right, and and what what we have to do is is try to recover a very messy, fluid, and illogical racial context in the 19th century. And as you point out, um, we could probably say the same thing, unfortunately, about the 21st century. But in the 19th century, Mormonism is born into a very charged racial context, so that uh, even groups that we might assume today were were simply accepted as white uh, there was um, actually a, a deterioration of the notion of a monolithic whiteness and so you have a variety of groups such as Irish immigrants who are coming to America and not being accepted as fully white on arrival uh, but being denigrated associated more with African Americans than with white Europeans um, one way of distancing Protestant white America from these suspect groups is just simply suggesting that they have physical characteristics, racial characteristics that are different, distinct, that make them incapable of democracy. So Mormonism is born into this context. Um, you have this splintering of monolithic whiteness. Um, nation states uh, become also racialized. And uh, so Protestant white majority tries to figure out how to situate Mormons within this hierarchy of whiteness. And in that hierarchy, Anglo-Saxons are seen at the top of the racial ladder. And there is this effort at pushing Mormons down several rungs on that racial ladder by comparing them with other marginalized groups or even suggesting the white immigrants who are coming are a degraded race. Uh, and suggesting that Mormons are not performing whiteness 
therefore they're not white. They're not doing what white people should do. The, the development theory is in operation in the 19th century, and it holds that all societies progress along the same basic trajectory from savagery to barbarism, and then from barbarism to civilization. And as societies progress along this trajectory, they're supposed to leave behind the markers of a savage and barbaric society. And a couple of those markers are polygamy and adherence to despotic rule. But then when observers look in on the Mormons, they see ostensibly white people, people who look white, but who are nonetheless, uh, in their minds, giving their free wills over to the despots Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and practicing polygamy. So they see this as a deterioration away from civilization, backward into barbarism and savagery. I was um, reading on page eight of your book, just to take a step back to the to pick out the Irish. Um, yeah. You, you uh, quoting from your book, immigrants from Ireland were singled out for their, quote, physical traits, their moral character, their peculiar customs, end quote. Their, quote, wild look and manner, mud cabins and funeral howlings, end quote, all conjured, quote, the memory of barbarous age, quote, in the mind of, uh, of one observer. Um, that's, uh, that's pretty shocking to our sensibilities. I think it should be shocking, but that's, uh, and, and then this is connected to they can't function in our society, right? They can't uh, function in a democratic society. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, so citizenship is tied to whiteness. The very first Congress in 1790 establishes who can be a naturalized citizen, and they decide that you have to be white and free to be able to become a naturalized citizen. Uh, so citizenship equals whiteness. And you see uh, Congress reifying that idea across the course of the 19th century with several of uh, laws that are passed or the Supreme Court also reifying that notion. Uh, John C. Calhoun, just for example, on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848, as the U.S. is about to acquire land from Mexico as a result of the U.S. war with Mexico, He's, he's in favor of the land that the U.S. is about to acquire, but unsure about the people on the land. And he declares on the floor of the United States Senate, democracy is a government of a white race. And the argument was that, well, if we look around the globe, there are no non-white people who practice democracy. Therefore, only white people are capable of democracy. And so when, you have, when you're calling Mormon whiteness into question, you're suggesting that they are unfit for democracy, incapable of participating as citizens in this uh, American republic. And remember, Utah applies seven times for statehood uh, and rejected by Congress in its applications for statehood. They don't fit the prevailing definition of what it means to be an American. It's not merely uh, that they're religiously suspect, but they become racially suspect as well, is the argument that I make in the book. And I want to uh, trace uh, you know, the, the history with regard to Mormonism, as you do in the book, but I, 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 I can't help but having you know, massive echoes here of, of uh, the current um, election. And uh, there, there's a lot of talk of nativism, or at least charges of of nativism, you you recounts you know several nativist backlashes uh, in in the book. And I wonder you know with the, without getting you too much hot water, or, um, however controversial or not controversial you want to be, uh, if you see echoes in the current political campaign. There's definitely echoes in the current political campaign, and I think uh, 
especially for the Utah audience that may be listening, uh, they may or may not be familiar with the ways in which uh, their white northern European ancestors, if they are, uh, if they have Mormon ancestors, their assumption may be that because they were white and European, they had no no problem. But um, you know, some some in the listening audience might not be familiar with the fact that in 1879. United States Secretary of State made an effort at trying to prevent white European immigrants from immigrating to the U.S. He sent a letter to all the foreign consuls in Europe asking them to prevent Mormons from immigrating. Obviously, we have uh, Trump as a presidential candidate arguing for uh, banning Muslim immigrants into the U.S. So, uh, there is very much um, a nativist backlash against immigration playing out in contemporary politics. In the 19th century, Mormons were one target of that nativist backlash, uh, something that present-day Latter-day Saints may not be terribly familiar with, but was very much a part of the way in which they were racialized and branded as other. And if you, uh, you know, if you if you want to adhere to a, a nativist um, message, it it, it does. Uh, I guess you can, in your mind, make it uncomplicated, but in my mind, it's it's very complicated. The, you know, the the only group of people who have pure, totally pure claim to nativist, uh, you know, uh, uh, claim is uh, are the Native Americans. Uh, you have to you have to stop at different points to to see okay who was assimilated when, <laughs> to see okay who is nativist, or who is native. No, that's exactly right. Uh, absolutely. Uh, America is built upon foreign immigration, and only the Native Americans uh, who were brushed aside by this foreign immigration, uh, you know, murdered, uh, removed from their land, uh, placed on reservations as a result of this foreign immigration, are are the true Native Americans. Uh, The rest of us are of immigrant ancestry. Uh, and, you know, each wave of immigrant ancestry or, or each wave of immigration uh, has produced a, a nativist backlash in the U.S., and, and we see that happening in today's election cycle, but also, obviously, different iterations of it in the 19th century. Mm. And and so when, uh, you know, Mr., we'll get back to the book, but uh, just one last thing before we go to break. Uh, so when Mr. Trump says in his recent speech that we have a right as a sovereign nation to vet immigrants and make sure we get immigrants who love us. Um, you know, we're talking about safety. I'm sure he's talking about safety and security, but also I, I believe he's, you know, he's talking about people who can assimilate, people who can be part of our democracy. This is something that that you write about in the book uh, very early on, 19th century. Yes, no, that's exactly right. These, these are the same arguments that are being made against Mormons. They were branded as lawbreakers. We should prevent them from immigrating because they are lawbreakers. Uh, you know, you could you could interchange quotes from uh, from from Donald Trump and those who were arguing against Mormon immigration in the 19th century and scratch your head and wonder which is which. This is definitely uh, you know an echo from the past. Mormons were a target of it in the 19th century. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State said we should prevent them from immigrating because they will become future lawbreakers. Uh, this is an undesirable group. Europe is trying to slough off the dregs of its society onto the U.S. through this Mormon immigration. Mm. And then I, I guess uh, someone, 
in the thick of this debate in the 19th century, if they were transported to uh, today, might be surprised to learn that Mormons became the most reliable of Republican constituencies and, uh, and uh, you know, thoroughly embedded in, in democracy. No, that's right. I mean, it's a very dramatic makeover. Uh, but, you know, I mean, Mormons, even at the time that they're being charged with being <laughs> unlawful and unloyal, um, are claiming that they are really the, the true preserves of, of American democracy and republicanism. So, you know, there's, there's a contest over what this all means, and Mormons are, are pushing back as best they can, uh, trying to assert their whiteness, claim citizenship for themselves at the same time that outsiders are suggesting that they're less white and not capable of citizenship. I want to jump back into this idea of race. Very interesting uh, how you frame this in, in the book. And surprising, as we said earlier in the program, that uh, Mormons perhaps who don't know this history. Uh, fascinating history. The book is Religion of a Different Color. The subtitle is Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. The author is uh, Paul Reeve, Associate Professor of History at the University of Utah. We'll have more uh, with Professor Reeve following this break. <laughs> Did you know that the damage to the brain brought on by Alzheimer's disease may begin years or even decades before you begin to show signs of memory problems? That is why it is never too early to start making these healthy lifestyle changes. Heart-healthy behavior can also significantly reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease. You can start now doing things that would be good for you anyway, like maintaining a healthy weight, eating right, getting regular exercise, managing stress, and nurturing healthy relationships. It also helps to get enough sleep. And of course, your risk to both your heart and your brain is lower if you don't smoke. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Hey, UPR listeners, I'm Katie Swain, the new membership officer here at UPR. You've probably heard me on the weekends during some of your favorite programs, Weekend Edition, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, This American Life, and Radio Lab. Today, though, I need your help. Next weekend, we're launching our fall pledge drive, and we need help from you, our listeners, to make it happen. Get on to upr.org, that's upr.org, to sign up now as a UPR volunteer and support the programming that you love. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Mormonism is one of the few homegrown religions in the United States, yet members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have struggled for status and recognition. And in his book, Religion of a Different Color, W. Paul Reeve explores the ways in which 19th century Protestant white America made outsiders of an inside religious group. Much of what has been written on Mormon otherness centers on economic, cultural, doctrinal, marital, political differences that set Mormons apart from mainstream America. Reeve instead looks at how Protestants racialized Mormons, using physical differences in order to define Mormons as non-white to help justify their expulsion from Ohio, Missouri, and uh, Illinois. Very interesting uh, history. The uh, book is Religion of a Different Color. Subtitle is Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. This is out from uh, Oxford University. Press. You can join us here in this conversation. We hope that you will. If you have a question or comment, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, Paul Reeve, um, 
It's interested to uh, I want to get back into to this idea of race and racializing uh, Mormons, many of which, most of whom at this time, 19th century, were from uh, Northern Europe, and so I guess otherwise would have had the stamp of approval. Um, you write about uh, George A. Smith. He was a Mormon leader, 1838. And uh, when he learned of mob activity against his co-religionists, quoting from the book in Missouri, he had left his proselyting work in Kentucky to join the main body of saints. Uh, on his way through Missouri, he stopped for the night at a home of a man who lived near DeWitt in Carroll County, and he did not tell the man that he was Mormon, uh, which was wise. Um, he he kind of got wanted to get the uh, sense of uh, of how people felt, and this man was very much against the Mormons. But he but he went on to he would go on to say that the people. I guess it bothered them. They could not tell Mormons just by looking at them. And there we get kind of get into this this idea of the Mormon body and, and trying to racialize them. Yes, that's right. Uh, so that particular person said, you know, uh, he hated the Mormons worse than the Indians because he could tell an Indian when he saw one, but he couldn't tell a Mormon. And that became the the, the rub. Uh, how do you tell a Mormon when you see one? And, and people started to suggest that they could, in fact, tell a Mormon when they saw one. Uh, by the time of the Mer- Missouri expulsion, uh, uh, people were claiming that they could distinguish a Mormon. And a, a later uh, history of that Missouri expulsion described Mormons as if they were a religion of a different color, that you could, in fact, tell them when you when you saw them. And so, associated with the term, originally uh, it was it was Mormonite, and then Mormon, and then by the 1840s, people started talking about a Mormon race. And associated with that were a variety of negative characteristics that were assumed to apply to the whole group. So. Think of perhaps the way in which uh, black people were racialized in the 19th century, assumed set of group characteristics that applied to all of them. Well, they're lazy, else, uh, or else we wouldn't have to whip them to get them to work, would be one of the negative racial characteristics ascribed to them by southern plantation owners. Same kind of thing was happening to Mormons, this assumed set of group characteristics. They are superstitious, they are ignorant, they're dumb, they're lazy, a variety of negative character traits ascribed to the whole group, and it simply takes on a life of its own. Uh, People start talking about a Mormon race by the 1840s, and a medical doctor actually claims that there is, uh, polygamy is giving rise to a new race by 1860. And you have this so-called science that, you know, that that, that they used to... uh prove, quote-unquote, that, uh, that African Americans were, were subhuman, you know, less less than, than whites. Uh, some of this, quote-unquote, science being applied here, I just wanted to read this sentence from uh, page 29. Uh, speaking, Harper's, a Harper's reporter uh, described Mormon Apostle Heber C. Kimball's face uh, this way. Under projecting eyebrows rolled two bright, cunning eyes. Their expression is sly and rat-like, vivid and repulsive. Another account described Kimball uh, with, quote, very keen, sharp eye, who was most notorious for his vulgar and coarse uh, speech. They're using physical characteristics here. Yes, that's right. Uh, and that's, that's uh, a, a part of this process. So you have physiognomy in the 19th century, the notion that um, facial features equal, uh, you know, character traits of a person, and you can read a person's face to understand aspects of their character, and then 
you also have uh, phrenology. You could, uh, the belief was that you could then read a person's skull, the bumps on their skull, the different uh, parts of their their skull equals different parts of their character trait. And so those are two of the pseudosciences in the 19th century that paid attention to Mormons and suggested that there are physical differences. Uh, Brigham Young is said to have polyerotic eyes, uh, that he is just physically prone to love more than one woman. Um, it's called polyeroticity. Uh, and uh, his eyes are used to illustrate one of these uh, medical journals from the 19th century to suggest that this is, in fact, a physical character trait uh, traceable through the eyes of a person. No. So they are very much trying to read Mormon bodies and suggest that they are degraded or a deterioration away from Anglo-Saxon whiteness. And of course, to our sensibilities, you know, we're we're hearing this. We read about about this quote unquote science. I'm putting quotes around it to, for obvious reasons, uh, and it seems ridiculous. But how how widespread was was this believed in in that time? Well, you know, if if we look at the medical profession, uh, Dr. Roberts Balthalo was a medical doctor who was sent west with Johnston's army in what uh, we call the Utah War. And he filed a report with the United States Senate in 1860, which argued that Mormon polygamy was giving rise to a new race, and he gave the full physical description of this new race, you know, receding eyes, uh, uh, sallow, cadaverous visage, uh, the whole description of this degraded body. And it was picked up by a variety of medical journals, both nationally and internationally, and republished almost uncritically. There was actually a conference on the Mormon body held at by the New Orleans Academy of Sciences by in, in late 1860, and only one medical doctor at that conference argued that it's too early to suggest that Mormonism is giving rise to a new race. He said that you know, Mormonism has only been around for 30 years. We should conduct empirical, verifiable uh, studies that try to substantiate that a new race is arising out of the Great Basin before we firmly conclude that this is, in fact, what is taking place. All of the other doctors who met at that conference uh, suggested that Bartholo was right and actually pushed, pushed his argument forward. Hmm. And Bartholo goes on to give another lecture on, on the Mormon body, the degraded Mormon body in Ohio, and it's also picked up and uh, published by medical journals. So. Uh, there is that evidence from from the medical community, and then it spills over into popular culture, dime novels, uh, but also into political speeches, uh, into Protestant tracts, uh, into newspaper editorials, uh, journals and diaries of overland immigrants who are passing through and, and suggesting that uh, Mormons are somehow physically different. So it permeates all aspects of American society. I tried to cast a very wide net in terms of the sources I was looking at because I wanted to ferret out, you know, uh, who actually thought this. And as far as I can tell from the written record, it seems to permeate uh, all levels of, of American society and the kind of sources that I was able to look at. Now, uh, I'm assuming, and I, well, I know from the book, that uh, Mormons, Mormon leaders will have pushed back on this idea. What, what, was, what was the Mormons' response? Yeah, so 
Mormons are aware of the way in which they uh, are being denigrated as not fully white, uh, as uh, producing this degraded race. And so you have then speeches from Mormon leaders which suggests that because polygamy is ordained of God, they say that the offspring, therefore, will be not degraded and deformed, but celestial, angelic, and divine, that they are actually giving rise to a more healthy race uh, in, in the Great Basin, and the offspring of polygamy uh, are, are just fine examples of true womanhood and true true uh, manhood uh, coming out of the Great Basin. And so there's this contest over, over the Mormon body that ensues. Neither side really suggesting that polygamy could, uh, or ne- neither side questioning that polygamy could produce, um, you know, uh, a new race, but actually just arguing about the outcome. And Mormons saying it's celestial, angelic, and divine, and outsiders suggesting that it's degraded and deformed. Mm. What are you going to do talking about uh, how all of this history affected Mormons uh, views toward African Americans? And uh, this uh, question has come to us, uh, or comment by uh, via email will get us into that. This is from Glenn, who has emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com. And you can as well, hope you will, at upraxcess at gmail.com. Or you can call us at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. My guest is Paul Reeve. Their book is Religion of a Different Color. This is what Glenn says. I can definitely see the swing from uh, an open and inclusive LDS church at its beginnings. There were many documented memories, uh, members rather of a very non-white full fellowship members with temple privileges, Uh, and the like under the auspices of Joseph Smith. I reason that Brigham Young was at least receptive and not against this. However, he was quoted as claiming that Utah would be a slave state and and cited a sentiment that Africans were a lesser race. This was after the settlement in Utah and prior to the American Civil War. I get the sense, says Glenn, that he either self-censored his feelings or succumbed to outside, quote, uh, or uh, parentheses, Protestant-based in parentheses pressures. Unfortunately, the, quote-unquote, lesser race sentiment had carried forward well into the 20th century. The church was a decade and a half behind the secular Supreme Court and the executive branch of our federal government. I felt like it was the threat of lawsuits and bad publicity that actually inspired the change and the accompanying inspiration to end the church's policy. I've actually witnessed the further instances of this feeling at work. As a Utah and working in Utah, I work with many members of the LDS faith. One of my colleagues was discussing the Cliven and Ammon Bundy situation in Oregon. He expressed his support for their anti-government position and finished it off with, quote, well, uh, we will all end up in a civil war because of the, uh, quote-unquote, coon in the White House, end quote. This is not the only instance, just the most poignant. Uh, Great show, says Glenn. Um, so this idea that Glenn has got us into here, how did, uh, and, and you spent, I think, three chapters on this, but uh, just briefly, how does this, uh, this relate, this, this back and forth over racializing of, of Mormons? And uh, I imagine that did have an effect on, on at least the, the official church viewpoint, the LDS church viewpoint toward African Americans. Yes, I, I do think it has uh, an impact. Uh, so... In the first 20 years of Mormonism, uh, you have black people who are joining the church, the first documented uh, actually 1830 in Kirtland, Ohio, so the founding year of Mormonism. Within uh, a few months, I found a news article in Philadelphia and one in New York 
which simply said Mormons have a black person wor worshiping with them. This was not a celebration of Mormon inclusiveness and diversity. Uh, it was, in, in fact, um, an accusation or a charge against them. And what you have is outsiders looking in on Mormons and suggesting that they're too inclusive, that they are accepting people who uh, white society knows should be rejected, should be marginalized. So they are accepting uh, black people. They are accepting Native American people, two groups uh, in 19th century society that suggested should be even enslaved or, or expelled or exterminated, um, and yet Mormons are, are accepting them. Uh, one accusation leveled against Mormon missionaries in the South was that they walked out with colored women, uh, that Mormons are elevating blacks above the whites in Missouri was another accusation or that the level of Mormon immigrants coming into Missouri was uh, at the lowest level, even uh, lower than uh, the black population. So there's this conflation of Mormons with uh, African-Americans. Uh, those early years of Mormonism, at the same time that the leader of Mormonism uh, is allowing for black priesthood ordination, so uh, at least two well-documented uh, black men are ordained to the Melchizedek or highest priesthood in, in Mormonism in the first couple of decades. And uh, Brigham Young even is on record as favorably aware of one of those black priesthood holders, a man by the name of Q. Walker Lewis. In 1847, he cites him as an example of Mormon inclusiveness and says, we don't care about the color. So uh, you have then a transition that takes place over time. Uh, one way in which you claim whiteness for yourself in the 19th century is in distance from blackness. And so you see Mormonism moving away from its own black converts towards whiteness across the course of the 19th century. And it's in fits and starts that you have this racial priesthood and temple restrictions that are implemented beginning with Brigham Young in the 1850s, uh, but I think finally solidified under Joseph F. Smith by uh, 1908, uh, the beginning of the 20th century. By the time we get to the 1960s and 70s, and you quote in the book, you have, you have LDS church leaders, uh, you know, Hubie Brown, David O. McKay, who are doubtful that, uh, that this is doctrine by revelation. And they're they're wanting to change this, but it, of course it it wasn't well it wasn't until 1978, uh, Spencer W. Kimball that this was changed, um, as he's as he claims by by revelation. Um, I want to uh, before we go to break, come back talk bring this forward to to uh, present times. Uh, chapter six: Black, White, and Mormon Miscegenation. Um, in this is different in different periods. At one point, as you mentioned just recently, there. Um, the, the white Protestants were worried that uh, that Mormons were too inclusive, and and when you get right down to it, they're worried about miscegenation. Yes, that's exactly right. And so you have uh, outsiders project projecting their fears of race mixing onto the Mormons. So the book includes a variety of political cartoons, but these are probably the most dramatic uh, way to think about this. Uh, the political cartoon that serves as, as the cover for the book is one example, but a variety of other political cartoons where outsiders imagine 
Mormon polygamy facilitating race mixing. And so you'll have the Mormon male out front and then the string of wives. Um, and the majority of the wives will be white, but you'll have a black wife and you'll have a Native American wife and you'll have an Oriental wife. So the suggestion is that Mormon polygamy is not merely destroying the traditional family, it's destroying the white race. And you have to understand how much Americans feared race mixing in the 19th century. Most states in the nation had laws on the books against black-white marriages. Remember, the Supreme Court doesn't strike that down until 1967 in Loving versus Virginia. So the majority of states in the nation have laws against this. And the argument is that white society knows this shouldn't happen, but Mormons are allowing it to happen. They're facilitating race mixing. And once again, it's tied back to the success of American democracy. If democracy is a government of a white race, Mormonism is giving rise to a race incapable of democracy. It's threatening the American Republic. So uh, these political cartoons suggest that, in fact, bound up in Mormonism is miscegenation, the deterioration away uh, uh, of the white race. And ironically, on the inside, Brigham Young is speaking out very strongly against race mixing, arguing for capital punishment um, as the penalty. So uh, both sides are talking past each other. Uh, outsiders not aware of the internal policies Brigham Young is putting into place. And Brigham Young, I think, um, trying to be as uh, stringent as possible in terms of his policy against race mixing to substantiate uh, the whiteness of, of the Mormon people on the inside. And so you have a racial priesthood restriction put in place a racial temple policy put in place that not just imp impacts black men, but black women who are Latter-day Saints and not allowed to participate in the saving rituals their faith requires for salvation. And that takes on a life of its own across the course of the 19th century, um, uh, assumes growing precedent and importance, and solidified in 1908 when the leader of Mormonism, Joseph F. Smith, basically erases from collective Mormon memory the black priesthood holders who were there from the beginning and suggest that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, had declared their priesthood null and void. And so he creates a new memory for the new century that it was white from the beginning and it will take a revelation to get rid of it. And in fact, it does in 70 years later. Um, later on, by the, the early 20th century, uh, you you write in your conclusion, which is titled From Not White to Too White, the continuing contest over the Mormon body. Uh, you have Teddy Roosevelt reaching out to Mormons and claiming that they are a bulwark of whiteness against what he called race suicide. What What's this race suicide he's talking about? Yes, yeah, so, so President Roosevelt uh, was fearful that Americans or, or uh, Protestant white America um, not having enough children. And you have... By that point, the new wave of immigration coming from Southern and Eastern Europe, uh, people of you know, darker skin and suspect religion uh, who are immigrating to the U.S. in unprecedented numbers. And the fear is that the old stock Protestant white Americans are not having enough children and therefore committing race suicide. And he then looks in on the Mormons, and, and all of a sudden Mormons have something desirable. They are they're having lots of white children. And so uh, the, this, the notion is that there is no race suicide going on in Utah, 
And this really helps. It's, it's one part of the process of uh, Americanizing the Mormons or making peace with the Republican Party, in fact, the party that uh, had been the anti-Mormon party of the 19th century. But back to Reed Smoot's um, uh, Senate hearings, where the U.S. Senate is trying to determine if they'll allow him to retain his Senate seat, Roosevelt comes in on the side of, of Reed Smoot, argues that Mormons have uh, something that the Republican Party should desire, and this race suicide plays into that acceptance of Mormonism uh, in, in the early 20th century. And they go on to pass as white, to claim whiteness for themselves. They're very successful in that, and, and perhaps too successful as, as then the country shifted. Again, we'll talk about that, bring it forward to, uh, to today. I was interested in your, uh, your comparing the I'm a Mormon uh, television ads in which uh, you know Mormons are, are assimilating, uh, asserting that they're, we're just like you. Um, and you say that uh, the, this Elderberry cartoon would, would, would fit right in, that the two are, are sort of uh, of a piece, ironically so. We'll talk about that and more uh, when we come back following this break. Freakonomics Radio, our game show, Tell Me Something I Don't Know. You'll hear from audience contestants and celebrity judges, Malcolm Gladwell, Anna Gasteyer, and David Patterson, all trying to tell you something you don't know. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Right at this very moment, you, sitting in your chair right there, could have in your gut little worms. Very tiny worms. Right in the belly. The size of a little hair. Sitting there. Incubating, waiting. Chewing on the inside of your intestine. Oh my goodness, it can crawl. Are you really that scared of a little worm? Parasites. Parasites. Are they evil or are they awesome? Next time on Radio Lab. Join us Tuesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. We've reached our last segment with Paul Reeve. His book is Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. And uh, Paul Reeve is uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Utah. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We have about 10 minutes left, upraxcess at gmail.com, or by uh, telephone to 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Page 260, uh, Paul Reeve, uh, you say, in this regard, Mormon elderberries, we, t- we talked about his family, the cartoon, uh, multiracial, that was seen as very bad uh, when that cartoon came out. Uh, Mormon Elderberry's family was a century ahead of its time. This point was made even more evident in 2010 when the LDS Church launched its I'm a Mormon media campaign. I think a lot of us are familiar with this campaign, but uh, tell us about that. Yes, so uh, this is an effort in the 21st century to claim, I believe, a internationally and racially diverse identity for Mormonism. So you have Mormons from around the globe uh, who are selected to become the face of 21st century Mormonism. And I think it's a way to attempt to normalize Mormons. These are people that you go to work with. They are 
lawyers, they are, uh, you know, professors, they are uh, entertainers, they're parents, uh, and they're Mormons. Uh, so it's an effort at, at normalizing them. But the group that is selected to represent the 21st, face of, 21st century face of Mormonism is internationally and racially diverse, and uh, an effort by Mormons to claim a diverse identity for itself in the 21st century to combat the charge that they are too white. And so that's the overarching arc of, of the book is from not white enough in the 19th century to too white by the 21st century. And in the 19th century, Mormons attempting to claim whiteness for themselves by the 21st century, attempting to claim a more racially diverse and international identity for themselves. This all has to do with otherness, doesn't it? With acceptance versus otherness, which you know has echoes in today's or, or this year's presidential campaign, and and uh, and going back uh, quite a ways uh, as well. It's it's a tension between the greater society and Mormons themselves, uh, but it's, it's it's kind of an undulating tension. Right now, it seems to be uh, Mormons are, are are very much trying to claim diversity. Yes, that's right. I, I think um, you know that's one way of looking at the entire sweep of of the Mormon story is is uh, as a tension between Mormonism and its host society. And I think any time that there is this sense that Mormonism is is blending, um, this is the argument that uh, sociologist Armin Moss makes in his book The Angel and the Beehive. Any time there's this sense that Mormonism is perhaps blending too much and uh, sort of a threat of just becoming another Protestant denomination, there will be a reassertion of Mormon distinctiveness. And so Mormons, you know, want to be accepted, right? Um, don't want to be seen as uh, so other that they are somehow a pariah group or a suspicious cult, but at the same time don't want to fully blend either. And so there is that dynamic tension that's played out across the course of, of Mormon history and there is this racial component to it, uh, I'm arguing in the book, that has largely been neglected by historians. And uh, as, as you just said, uh, um, previous studies of uh, Mormon otherness centers on economic, cultural, doctrinal, etc., you're, you're arguing this uh, centers racial, and, and inevitably it centers on debate over the body, right? And that, this, is, this is part of it that I hadn't paid attention to in 2012 when Mitt Romney was running for president. Um, so page 266 of your book, um, you, you mentioned several commentators took uh, pot shots at uh, Mitt Romney's uh, quote-unquote Mormon underwear. Uh, and then they went on to, one of them went on to say, look at the dude, lantern-jawed, excellent physical shape, jet black hair with graying temples, crisp suit, too long in the tanning booth. He's a character of your slick and soulless politicians. Uh, plus, a girl on MTV couldn't possibly ask him whether he prefers boxers or briefs, and, and you know, talked about the the religious underwear. Um, it, it goes to Mitt Romney's body. Yes, that's right. And you know, I, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of that. Uh, if you're running for president of the United States, you're just going to experience that. I mean, uh, commentators do that. I think to all presidential candidates. Obviously, Donald Trump. Uh, we've seen that play out, uh, but also Hil Hillary Clinton as well. So some of it is just, I think, being in the spotlight and running for president, you will experience some of that. But I think there's um, something also going on there with, with Mitt Romney that fits into this bigger argument that we've been talking about, that 
by the 21st century, Mormons are branded as too white. They have a racial problem yet again, but it is the opposite of the racial problem from the 19th century, that they have, by the 21st century, become too white. And the stereotype about them is, is simply that all Mormons are white and they all live in Utah. Uh, and so you have, by the time that Romney uh, wins the nomination for the Republican Party in 2012, you have Lee Siegel, who publishes an editorial in, in the New York Times calling Romney the whitest white man to run for president in recent memory. And it's his Mormonism that makes him too white. And, you know, even though you have all presidents uh, in the U.S. up through President Obama who have been white, Romney is somehow whiter than the rest because he is Mormon. And you have this image of the squeaky clean, white, uh, you know, capitalist, uh, upper class Mormon as somehow not able to be in touch with uh, a racially diverse America, uh, out of step with what's going on in the rest of the country, and incapable of identifying with anyone outside of that very white male kind of purview. So that's uh, the interesting arc of the argument ending with Mitt Romney. We just have a couple minutes left. I want to broaden this out. Um... It, it's interesting to, to see that whole arc w- with regard to Mormonism and the, the whole arc in general of, of um, racial politics and making undesirable groups other through whatever means. And that's with us today, isn't it, as we've been discussing. Um, the, the debate right now is over Muslims. Uh, are, are they too other to, to be included? Yes, that's right. And, and I hope... I, I really hope that you know people who are willing to engage the book um, have that in mind. It's, it's really not. Um, it, it's difficult not to be aware of the current situation, um, but I think, especially for for Latter Day Saints in Utah, to be aware of this history, and you know, if it happened to you, uh, the hope is that you are willing to take a step back and make sure that we don't allow it to happen to any other group. And certainly the current political climate should teach us that there are important lessons from the past that can be applied to the present. And this, uh, the idea of race, you know, race is a very, you know, slippery subject, and, and, and in many ways it's constructed, right? There's it's very hard to pin down, um, you know, in, in the DNA, this idea of, of race, and yet... I wonder, having gone through this whole sweep, what I guess my view, and I'll see if you agree, is that it seems like it's always going to be with us. Some groups are always going to want to other the other groups, and they're going to want to use race. No, I think you're. I think you're right, Tom. Uh, so obviously, the argument from the book is that race is not a biological reality, uh, and I think that's largely the consensus of of academics who have who have studied this. But it is a social construct, and we should be aware of it as a social construct and how it's used in our society to try to shore up power for one group and take away power from other groups, and being cognizant of the way in which race is used in those dynamics should help us hopefully to stand back and take a deep breath and recognize uh, how it functions as a social construct and be willing to 
ameliorate those negative consequences and stand up for groups that may be denigrated as a result of these social constructs. We are out of time. We'll leave it there. Religion of a Different Color, Race, and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness is the book. It's out from Oxford University Press. The author is uh, Paul Reeve, uh, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Utah. Paul Reeve, thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And I uh, hope you'll be with me tomorrow. We're going to be uh, talking about Tul Gawande's book, Being Mortal. There's a uh, PBS film that's uh, been made of that, and we have a uh, screening that we're a part of of that film coming up in a couple of weeks. We'll preview that and talk about end-of-life issues on the program tomorrow. Uh, of course, the title of the book and the film is called uh, Being Mortal. Then on Thursday, I'll be talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, poet Gregory Pardlow about his latest collection called Digest. That's what's coming up. hope you'll be with me. Thanks for listening today. When John Lennon first met Yoko Ono at an art gallery, she was already an established artist in her own right. He climbs to the top of the ladder, and there's a tiny word written on the ceiling. He looks through the magnifying glass, and the word says yes. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Wake up with good reason Wednesday at 4 a.m. on Utah Public Radio. This is Terry Guy, Development Officer at Utah Public Radio. UPR is a statewide public radio station serving the citizens of Utah since 1953. Our listeners are educated, socially conscious, and enjoy arts and culture. They are your loyal patrons. If you're looking to make a smart business decision, become a UPR sponsor. For more information, call 435-797-3141. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.